strategy, you should always be able to define a good strategy in a word, a phrase, paragraph, a page, a speech, and a book. And I did a survey at the end of the thing, and more than 90% would have voted to rejoin the European Union. The next generation just looks at and thinks, what on earth were you people doing? Johnson got away with murder, is the truth. Johnson didn't have scrutiny, he had coverage. This is uh, the Love Podcast. Welcome back, everyone, for Season 3, Episode 3. Today, we're absolutely honoured to be joined by Mr. Alistair Campbell. It's a mammoth episode. Mr. Campbell is a mental health advocate, journalist, strategist, arguably best known for his role in Tony Blair's successive governments, where he worked as spokesman, campaign manager, and press secretary. He was an innovator in the field, famous for his handling of the media. Today is is a really exciting interview and the loafers are, are really excited to, to be hosting Mr. Campbell. Nowadays, Mr. Campbell is chief interviewer for GQ and his podcast tops the charts in the UK, a remarkable achievement given our presence in the podcasting scene. Mr. Campbell, thank you so much for being here with us. My pleasure. Thank you. So we're going we're gonna to get started with a few icebreakers, just a few jokey questions to relieve the tension and, and get us started. So I'll start with a, a classic desert island question. <laughs> Would you rather be stuck on a desert island with Nigel Farage or Jacob Rees-Mogg? Uh, oh, that is bad. Um, <laughs> the thing about desert island is you can swim. I can I swim a lot. I'll just swim away, whoever it is. Uh, <laughs> I think the most entertaining... I, th- I think... Who are you going to have the better conversations with? Farage is quite a big football fan. Was Crystal Palace. Um, I, can't, I, I can't imagine talking to Reese Mogg about football. Well, you could talk to him about the 19th century, maybe. Minister for the 19th century. But... Or the, the Eaton War game. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm probably going to go Farage. They're both, they've both done a lot of damage to the country, though. Fair enough. <laughs> Um, I could uh, continue on with this uh, guess format. Um, we have another question. Um, would you rather have Donald Trump's or Boris Johnson's hair? The thing about hair is you can cut it off. That's true. <laughs> so I think, I think with both of them, I would rather be completely bald. <laughs> okay, yeah. answer. Really good answer. <laughs> Same, probably. <laughs> Same. Uh, so... The final icebreaker question is in line with our name, the Loaf Podcast. Our, our name didn't come from anything bread-related, but it's kind of evolved into into that. So we asked Peter Singer what his favorite bread was, and he he gave us a whole spiel about he about how he break, bakes his own bread. We're wondering if you have any favorite bread, maybe the French baguette or anything along those lines, German bread. No, I like it. It's a loaf called the Ventoux. Hmm. Okay. Uh, which is made in near where we go in France, near Mont Ventoux, and it's called the Ventoux. So whenever I eat that bread, I mean, I know where I am anyway, but it kind of reminds me that I'm, I'm there. Whereabouts in France is that? Well, do you know, do you, do you follow cycling at all? Mont Ventoux is like one of the classic Tour de France. Oh, okay. No, I don't follow it so much. So it's sort of, it's about an hour from Avignon. Oh, okay, got you. I'm um my family are from Leon originally, so not so far. But, um, oh, cool. 
Yeah. So I think that's it for the icebreaker questions. We'll maybe get into something a little bit more serious. So I recently did a nine-day history final um, on modern British history, specifically from 1900 to present. And one of the questions um, I was asked was, uh, did the government elected in 1997 mark a break from Thatcherism? Um, I mean, I found quite a lot of difficulty in defining what Thatcherism was, but um, how would you, I guess, respond to that question? Um, I think there were some tenets um, of whether you call it Thatcherism or of what we followed, bearing in mind that we'd been through a long period of Conservative government, Margaret Thatcher mm-hmm. and then John Major. Um, there were some tenets that we that, that I think we accepted, I and mean, we didn't undo a lot of the legislation she did. Um, but I think where we made... Where, where we felt there was massive change to be made were in, certainly in our relations with Europe. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think we, feel that we felt she'd taken a wrong turn on foreign policy. We had to rebuild and not just rebuild, but strengthen relations with Europe. Second area was in unemployment. I think that the Thatcher, you know, Norman Lamont famously said unemployment a price worth paying. Um, I think we felt that there were things that the state could do to try to alleviate what at the time was particularly chronic long-term and youth unemployment. And I think we did that through the the New Deal. And I think the other thing I'd say is that there there had been a long-term underinvestment in public services that we felt had to be reversed. Um, so I'd say they were three pretty big areas on, you know, economic, uh, public policy and social, and also on foreign policy, where we made a lot of change. And then, you know, if you look at some of the things that we did early on, there are things that Mrs. Thatcher would never have done. She'd never brought in a minimum wage. She would never have um, devolved power to a Scottish Parliament or a Welsh Assembly, as it was then. Uh, probably would never have made the Bank of England independent. Although um, we interviewed John Major on our podcast last week, and, and John Major did he did flirt with the idea of making the bank independent um, at one point. Um, so I think we made a lot of change, um, but there were there were some central tenets of of that previous era that we kept. Thank you. I think yeah, New Labour is definitely famous in a lot of ways for its policy and kind of providing this third way in politics, a sort of fusion kind of centrist approach, but also and particularly with your role, um, New Labour is famous for its modernization of party campaigning and relation to the media and this sort of thing. And it's sometimes pejoratively been termed spin. How do you see the impact of that modernization on British party politics now? I think we, look, we definitely, the whole concept of the whole thinking by New Labour, to my mind, wasn't that revolutionary in that it was saying, you know, you've got this sort of sterile debate in our country between left and right. The right, to put it crudely, thinks the markets can run everything and let them run rampant and we'll have nice trickle-down economics and everything will be fine. And the left thinks the state has to do everything. Now, they're both caricatures, but that's kind of how we were both being seen by large parts of the country. And... What New Labour was saying was you actually need a well-functioning economy in order to have a well-functioning society, but you need to have a well-functioning society in order to have a well-functioning economy. The two have got to go together. 
And that, to me, didn't seem that revolutionary. Uh, but in a way, it was a way. It, it was kind of quite mold breaking in terms of our attitude to politics and the economy. I think on the communications side, I think I honestly think so much of this is overstated because we we when you look at the bias that there is, for example, in our press, um, if you look at the look at the moment, some of our papers. The the you know we're in an era of post truth politics I would argue and actually our media is a big part of that you know to have a situation where you, uh, the New European this week has got a piece about the Daily Express for example and it's just got a montage of some of the headlines about Johnson um, over the last period I mean just just mind blowing how these newspapers kind of rather than challenging lies in politics mm-hmm. ventilate them on behalf of the, of the liar. What we were trying to do was to was to neutralise the media landscape. We never thought, to be honest, that we'd get positive uh, endorsement from much of the media. In the end, we did. Um, but that wasn't really the plan. The plan was always to try to, to neutralise them. And the thinking, actually, was less about the media than understanding that the media is one part of a landscape on which you're trying to communicate constantly to the public. And the single most important thing in terms of your communication is kind of not what you're saying, it's what you're doing. And the communication then follows from that. So the strategy, the new labor approach, the the overall strategy was way more important. Once you've got the strategy, then how do you communicate it? And the answer is, in terms of us, we communicated... Yeah, pretty aggressively, pretty proactively, but in a way that, I don't, I, again, I don't think it was that revolutionary. I think it was us just sort of doing things that the right in politics think they are the only ones entitled to do. Yeah. Um, but, it, but it was, you know, and certainly the whole thing, I think, again, the whole thing is overblown about message control and, you know, me sitting at the centre sort of pulling all these strings and whatever. It, it kind of wasn't like that. It was the important thing was having that clarity of strategy. And then discipline. Yes, you need a discipline as well. Um, and it's interesting to watch. I, I, I watched a lot of the governments since us, the Conservative governments in the last 13 years, I kind of think they learned the wrong lessons about us. I think Cameron and Osborne, they, they were very effective as communicators, right? In that, Cameron knew how to make a speech. They, were, they knew how to make, create a picture. They knew how to frame an argument. They were perfectly good at that, but they were terrible at strategy. Here's the thing about, about our media. Our media is never happier than when they're talking about themselves. They love talking about the media. Right. Ultimately, it's a part of the landscape, but it's not as big as people think. A government or a party can still communicate very effectively, regardless of the bias in the media. What's popularly known is that uh, New Labour really perfected like these sort of sound bites that we see um, within. So, for instance, like tough on tough on the causes of crime, tough on uh, tough on crime itself. Um, do you agree with that characterization? How New Labour kind of revolutionised a sort of a soundbite focused, like a snap, like catchy um, a politics. Yeah, but listen, 
What were the Ten Commandments in the Bible? They were that was the, that was uh, that was just a very effective form of simple communication. Thou shalt not kill, or thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor, blah, 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 blah. That was very, very simple, effective communication. My favorite soundbite of all time is Veni Vidi Vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. The idea that, you know, the first time that anybody thought you spoke in snappy soundbites was when Tony Blair said, education, 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 yeah. or the People's Princess, or New Labour, New Britain. You know, it's, I think what we, I think what's interesting about that, I go, I go back to the point I made. Those that have stayed in the public consciousness, like education, 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 the reason for that is that they did speak to that enduring strategy. We did prioritise education. Yeah, what was I saying? You have to remember what I was saying. Look at your bookshelf. Why have you got none of my books on your bookshelf? <laughs> I might do somewhere. I don't know. My dad might have one, but, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think particularly in an era where things are very fast, people are very busy, attention spans have kind of shortened, it's important that you're able to land a message quickly. Um, but the message should always speak to the deeper strategy. So and my point is that strategy, you should always be able to define a good strategy in a word, a phrase, a paragraph, a page, a speech, and a book. And mm. I just feel with this lot, because the current government, I feel they've got the slogans, global Britain. Uh, you know, what does it even mean? in the way that they're kind of operating, levelling up. Um, so you, you, the, it, it ultimately, I go back to the point I made earlier, there's so much focus on the tactic of communication mm. as opposed to actually, well, what was the strategy, which is way, 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 way more important. Yeah. No, I, I completely understand this. The strategy sort of underpins it. Just on the um, social media point, though, about shorter attention spans and that sort of thing, you said that, for example... You need to be able to express it in both a word and a book. Now that people are mostly receiving their political discourse and all that sort of thing through Instagram infographics and that kind of thing, how would you have managed your communication strategy differently if you were doing, say, a new Labour campaign now or a political campaign now? Uh, I think we'd have, you, we'd have done all that, we'd have adapted to all the change that there has been. But I think in a funny sort of way, social media has seems to me to have of, it forces people to be more tactical. But I actually think the response should be to be even more strategic. In other words, only think of these things as the tactic. The, you know, the social media is just, it's just the tactic. Again, the, what matters is, is what are you saying? I remember talking to Arsene Wenger, the Arsenal manager once, and he, was, he made a very important point. He said, he said, the only things you can actually control in your own field you know, whether it's me in politics, him in football, the, the, the only things you can control are what you do and what you say about what you do. And that's it. And so I, I think that, so we would have done social, we'd have engaged in social media. Uh, we would have done infographics in the kind of way we did, but we did them in a more old-fashioned way because the technology at the time didn't exist. Um, so I like to think would have been, I think, I think social media has made politics much more difficult but I think there is, the reason it's been made it more difficult is because people are on, on our side of the fence, I think, are responding too tactically to 
the pressures that it brings rather than strategically. Yeah, thank you. And to kind of to kind of link back to your idea of Bernie Vici and um and this idea of winning and conquering, it's it's an interesting point. You talk a lot about the need to win to bring change. It's a reasonable point. And um I was I was around about three elections in the Oxford Union where where you spoke, and there is a lot of that idea of how do you win? How do you balance this idea of competitiveness with also a vision of wanting to win to actually affect change instead of winning because you want to win? So how do you foster that really effective winning culture in a party? Um, well, the first thing I would say to people is they should read my book about winning. <laughs> uh, I wrote a book about winning or winners and how they succeed. And I think within a campaign, there's three things really that go together. For, for you, you need, and you can put them in any order because you need all of them. You need leadership, teamship, and strategy. Uh, you can't have, I mentioned Cameron Osborne. They, Cameron had, you know, what I would identify as certain leadership skills. He actually had quite a good team. He built quite a good team around him, but he failed on strategy. Uh, I, I sometimes see people who I think, oh, yeah, he's got leadership skills, but then you look at the team, it's not there. Um, so you need those three working in harmony. The other thing I'd say in a campaign, you need absolute relentlessness. You know, one thing, a slight worry I have with Labour at the moment, I mean, look, I think Keir's done a, Keir Starmer's done a pretty amazing job to get from where Labour was in 2019 to where they are now where the expectation problem is no longer can they win? Oh, my God, they're never going to win again. Or But now the expectation problem they've got is the expectations are too high. Everybody thinks they're going to win. Uh, that's, that's a difficult place to be. I, I think the campaign mindset says every day, what do we do today to help ourselves win? And just as important, what do we do today or not do today to stop ourselves to, to, to make that might help us lose, and and I, when I interview people on um, whether it's on the podcast, whether it's for books, particularly in sport, I always ask I ask every sports person this question: What motivates you more? I love winning, or I hate losing, and I am very much an I hate losing person. Mm-hmm. And that is the kind of mindset I prefer to have in a campaign. I think there's been studies actually that those. That that's a more effective way of looking at it because the negative consequence is like worse to run away from than than the positive, which you can do without, I guess. Yeah, I think again though, I think within a team you need both. I think one of I do think one of Tony Blair's strengths as a campaigner and as a politician was that he's he's basically optimistic. Um I'm I guess I'm basically pessimistic. And He'd be, I'd be the guy sitting there thinking, oh God, why am I doing? Oh, this is going wrong. <laughs> and trying to wrestle it back. But he's the guy going out front and just saying, hey, it's all good, you know? And I think you sometimes need both of those. Yeah, thank you. You, you, you mentioned your pessimism. You've been recorded saying quite a few times that Brexit is this sort of disaster for Britain, which is almost inescapable. But you were, um, a large part of the People's Vote campaign, or you're on the advisory for whether the country should um, accept this new deal or not, and whether there should there should be a referendum on that. Um, now that that hasn't quite worked, do you think the damages of Brexit is, is still reversible, or, or where do you see the direction of it going? 
Oh, I think it's very hard. Um, I mean, I, you know, I was on Question Time on Thursday. I don't know if you saw it, and the, the audience was 100% Leave voters in Clacton, which is, you know, one of the most Brexit voting places in the country. And it was quite interesting. I was in two minds about whether to do it. I thought it was a bit weird, you know, literally seven years on from the referendum, we were really having an audience where it's just people who voted Leave. But then I thought it'd be interesting to see how many have changed. And I'd say quite a few have. Um, But more interesting, on the way, I went to a school in Clacton uh, in a very tough area, actually has as part of its catchment area, one of the poorest um, areas in the country. And I did a survey at the end of the thing, and more than 90% would have voted to rejoin the European Union. Um, And that's kids. And I just think that we... We've got ourselves, our politics has got itself into a position where it's almost like we can't even think about addressing a massive issue that the next generation just looks at and thinks, what on earth were you people doing? Um, And, you know, the the book, my latest book, What Can I Do? But What Can I Do? Which I, and this, I was talking to the kids about this, is about, I, I say, what one generation does, the next generation is entitled to undo. Now, it would be hard to undo Brexit, be very, very hard to undo it. But it's done already so much damage. And you know, one of the things that's most damaging of all is the fact that the people who fought for it can't even begin to admit them to themselves or to the public that it is damaging. So on the panel, John Redwood was on the panel. The first question was, has the cost of living crisis got anything to do with Brexit? It's got absolutely nothing to do with Brexit. You know, it's just nonsense. It's nonsense. We lost... 10% 10% value in the pound the day after. We've never got it back. Productivity has never come back. Infl- investment has gone down. The inf- inflation is not all about Brexit. I'm not, I'm not as stupid enough to say that. It's also factors like energy prices, the war in Ukraine, the impact of COVID. But that Brexit is a factor in it, is undeniable. And yet they still deny it. I think I saw you in that, in that question time speech saying that it wasn't a market correction it was a prediction of the future of britain and that's pr- pretty that, depressing if that, that is the case well, well th- that is what that that is what happens when when something like uh that 10 percent depreciation depreciation in value of the pound happens that's the international market signaling what they think is going to happen they're betting on the future and on that bet from their perspective they've not been wrong and we've not recovered from it Thank you. Yeah. Talking about um, the future and returning to Labour's potential of winning and maybe some view of positive change, even though Brexit isn't really on the agenda for them. um, What advice would you give to Keir Starmer at this stage for the upcoming election? And how do you think he should handle it? Um, Look, I I think that if if, if you look at a few years, Keir's my MP, right? And he lives lives not far away. And I see him from time to time. And the first time I ever heard him to my mind, articulate what I would define as what we were talking about earlier as a strategy, okay, was through there in my living room and we're having a cup of tea. And I was I was saying, this is way back, not long after we become leader, and I was saying, look, why aren't we doing this? And why are you doing this? And why are you doing this? And what about this? And nah, nah, nah. and I was saying, you know, why aren't you hitting them harder on Brexit? Why aren't you hitting them harder on this? And, that, that. and he said, look, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to, he said, I've got a, my, my strategy over this parliament is in 
in three stages. First of all, we took such a hammering in 2019, I've got to completely decontaminate the brand post-Corbyn, post-antisemitism. And that means showing that the Labour Party has changed. Okay. Now, I think he's done that pretty effectively, actually. The second stage is to show that the Tories are unfit for office. Okay. Now, the Tories have given him massive help on that, but don't underestimate. I think he's got better and better in Parliament. I think they have been pretty effective. One of the, one of the re, I think one of the reasons that Johnson finally got done over the COVID stuff in terms of getting, you know, part of that parliamentary report was actually some of the staging points were, were questions that Keir was asking along the way, um, you know, that didn't necessarily always get massive coverage at the time, but they were kind of, you know, there were staging points. So that's the second stage. And, and then he said the third stage is to set out with real clarity why and how a Labour government would be different. Now, I think we're, that's where we are now. And what, so when you say, what would my advice be? It would be to say, right, that is where we are now. And that has got to become absolutely crystal clear so that when people go into the ballot box, they, it's not just that they know what, what they're voting against, they, they know as well what they're voting for. And it's got to be, you know, back to the attention span thing. There's a reason why Sunak stands there every time with these five priorities. I mean, I think, you know, He's wrong in what they are, and I don't think he's very good at delivering them. But it's, you know, you need that sense of clarity about this is what we're going to do. And Labour have got to get to that position of, 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 of so that, and also for their activists when they're out in the, I, I was at an event recently at, um, in Oxfordshire, and I got a question from a guy in the audience. He said, I've been a member of the Labour Party for 50 years but and I've always felt comfortable being a member of the Labour Party. But when I'm out and about at the moment, people say, "Yeah, but what 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 am I voting for?" You see, I find it quite difficult to answer. And I said, "Well, that's not your problem. That's not your fault. That's we're back to the point we talked about earlier. That's a lack of clarity about what the strat the overall strategy is. So that's the bit that's got to become clear in the next, frankly, in the next weeks and months." Because uh, you know, election campaigns themselves they can change things at the margins. But the fundamentals are being established now. Oftentimes, um, I guess Keir is um, Keir Starmer is often leveled with the accusation that he's boring, he's uncharismatic. I yeah. remember I watched a little a snippet of you on uh, I think Tortoise Media, um, and you said um, that um, Keir should uh, own up to the accusation of being boring. Like it's it's something that um, he should. I don't know, maybe take with pride or say, oh well, a bunch of our last politicians, our last prime minister was a. Absolute clown, you know. Uh, we, we, he just should purely just own up to the fact that he's. I don't, boring. I don't, I think, I don't think I quite said that. I don't think he should go around saying, "Hey, look at me, I'm boring," because I actually don't think he is boring. I think he's, I think he's interesting. He's got a very, very interesting life story. Uh, if he becomes prime minister, he'll be one of a pretty small number of genuinely working class people who gets to the top. I mean, his background was not at all privileged. The Tories do this Sir Keir Islington thing, even though the Sir comes with the fact of being the DPP and he's never lived in Islington in his life. Um, but I actually, so I think his backstory is interesting. I think, I think his methods are interesting. I, he, he's not, I, I think what I probably meant by that, I don't remember the interview, but I think what I probably meant by that is that you have to kind of accept who and what you are, and then project that. So he's not Barack, he's not got Barack Obama's voice. He doesn't have 
you know, Bill Clinton, Tony Blair kind of charisma. But he's got something very, very strong. And I think the fact that he's serious. One of the things that's really interesting about when he was up against Johnson, I know for a fact, because I was seeing from time to time at the time, he absolutely despised what Johnson was doing to our politics, to our public life and so forth. But I don't think that ever really came across because he was always holding himself back a bit as, if you like, the lawyer. Um, now, what I, was, what I would say, I definitely think there's, there's mileage in saying if he, was, if he was doing this interview and he was in an election campaign and somebody said to him, but look, Sakir, we've just done a sort of survey and the one word that people most identify with you is, is boring. You know, what do you say to that? I say, well, look, I'm, I'd say I think I'm doing an important job. And I think it's <laughs> I think it's interesting that somebody like me from my background has got into this position, is doing this. Um, but if you want a comedian, go to the theatre. If you want somebody who makes you go all tingly, you know, go and listen to your favourite music. I'm a serious guy doing what will be the most serious job in the country if I get there. And I think people are sick to death of the style of politics that we've seen with Trump, with Johnson. And um, people have got to take me, as, take me as I am. I think the other thing, I think the other point I think I did say in that interview is I think that it's very interesting that the, the next election, assuming that Sunak and Starmer are both there, which I think they will be, then it's going to be fought by two guys who've only been MPs for about eight years. Uh, that's, that's a very short time in historical terms for... So, that, so they haven't necessarily got as much experience as a lot of party leaders get before going into an election. Um, and I think you should own that as well. I think you say, look, maybe what you mean when you say I'm not this and I'm not that is that I'm not like a lot of the politicians you've seen. Well, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm more serious. I'm more. I'm not. In, I'm not interested in the theatre. I'm not interested in the the blah. I hate prime minister's questions time. Question time. You know, I want to just get out there and fix the country. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, just before I ask my question. I'm gonna. We're gonna ask the last politics question, then move to mental health. If that's okay, just yeah, time wise. Yeah, fine. Thank you. You speak about this kind of idea of public opinion, and relating that to this GQ interview you did with Tony Blair. It's interesting how you spoke about this idea of going from loved to toxic so quickly, and in many of the parts of the world, even hated. And I'd like to ask how you dealt with maybe a similar situation from 2004 onwards. This idea of how public opinion can change so fast. About what? Um, in 2004 onwards, how that public opinion changed and how you dealt with that situation. But for Tony or for me? Uh, for, for, you. for you, following on yeah. from, yeah, like your personal <laughs> dealing with it. <laughs> See, um, I've got a pretty thick skin, to be honest. And I think that, you know, it's quite strange at the moment because the podcast that I do is incredibly popular. Um, I don't think I've ever been stopped as much as I do get stopped in the street at the moment with people saying nice things rather than not nice things. Uh, I think that the a lot of the books that I've done, particularly the mental health stuff and also on films as well, I think has, has, has sort of maybe changed the way that people look at me. 
I still get, you know, most interviews I do, I still get, or public meetings still probably get a little bit of hostility about Iraq. Um, but in the main, I mean, in, in the new book, I've got this, I've, one of my lifetime ambitions is to get a word into the Oxford English Dictionary, okay? And the word I'm trying to get at the moment is perseverance, <laughs> which is, the, which is the, the combination of perseverance and resilience. And I think I've got both of those things. And I, I think the, the British public can be incredibly unreasonable at times, but they can also be very reasonable and fair. And I think they do have a certain respect for people who just keep going. Um, so it was interesting the other night in Clacton, Lots of my friends were saying, why on earth are you doing that? Hot leave audience. They're just going to hate you. And but actually, I don't think they did. And I think they, I think the, you know, given especially the government didn't even put anybody on the panel, which was pathetic. Um, so I think they there was a bit of residual, you know, well, at least he's got the balls to turn up and say what he really thinks. Um, and so I think you just got to keep going. And I'll tell you what. I think it's important in this, and and I think this is really important for your generation with the whole sort of social media stuff. I'm sometimes really shocked when I see people genuinely get affected by what people say about them on social media. I don't, unless there's a point to it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people can make a point and you think, mm, yeah, they've got a point. And I think that's perfectly good. I think that's a good thing. Um, usually I'll know when they've got a point, even before they've said it, but it's sometimes quite good to get it kind of registered. But most of the time, uh, let's just take question time the other night. I get, we, you do, we recorded question time at eight o'clock, do it, get in the car, you've got, you've been sitting in the back of the car for two hours, being driven home, and you're just sort of flicking idly through the social media. And some of it saying, oh, you know, I wish Alistair Campbell was back in charge. Uh, and others, oh, my God, somebody actually saying what I think. And then you'll get the other one saying, you're a war criminal, nobody gives a shit what you say, da 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 You, you just, I have an image of that sort of stuff. It's a kid or it's a guy sitting in a vest in his underpants on his mum's sofa, uh, watching the telly, and that's all he's got to do. No, it could be. I suppose, I suppose you can understand why that could affect some people's mental health. I do, I do, I do understand it. But the point I make to them: so my daughter's a comedian, right? She's a, she's a stand-up comedian. So stand-up comedians get a lot of abuse, particularly if they're women, right? Yeah. Uh, and every now and again, it sort of I think it gets to a bit. And I say to her, look, if I'd have thought that either of my parents thought I was a terrible son, that would really upset me. If my partner, who just phoned then, if my partner thought I was a terrible person to live with, that would really upset me. If my kids thought I was a horrible human being, if my colleagues thought I was a terrible team player or a terrible boss, if my close friends thought I'd let them down, that would get me down, right? But why would I worry about somebody that I've never met who doesn't know me, who's got a prejudiced view that they want to vent, just let them do it. Here's the thing for you. I've never, ever, ever blocked anybody on social media. Never. Uh, I just can't see the point. Can't see the point. I think the only reason some people I know would block the, someone on social media would be because their girlfriend told them to. 
I, I bet there are other reasons. I bet there are other reasons. But yeah, no, I think I think you give them something they want if you do that. Moving on to, I guess, mental health. Um, as you just stated earlier, you've been you know very advocate, very vocal, sorry, about mental health um, and your own struggles with it. I guess uh, how hard is it to um, work within politics um, as it relates to, I guess, consistent demands. Um, um, or a place upon you um, by uh, by government, by I mean, not in your case, by constituents, by etc. How, how how does that relate to mental health? I think there is a. I'm actually speaking about this with a Tory MP, Charles Walker, who's also talked about mental health struggles. We're doing an event together in in Parliament uh, week after next, I think. Um, there is something strange about. Politics. I, I do think sometimes it's almost like a, lab, a laboratory for poor mental yeah. health. You know, it can be quite isolating. Um, it's it, it is hard to do well. Is hard. I think to, to the sort of level that I was operating with alongside a leader of a party and a prime minister. It's it to do it the way I felt it had to be done. Don't even think about having days off, really. Um, now that was probably just, and I, to be fair, I was like that when I was a journalist as well. So not everybody maybe has to be like that, but the, you feel the pressure all the time for sure. And then particularly now we've talked about social media, the abuse that people get, the expectations are massive. You know, why can't they sort it out? Well, it's quite difficult. Yeah, but they're in power. Um, you know, the, the expectations are very, very high. Um, and I think the other thing is, I don't think politics itself, I don't think politicians do a good job of defending politics because most of the time they're just taking lumps out of the other side. So the message being put out to the public is, mm, God, it's not a very nice life, this, is it? And what that does is it stops people who probably would be quite good at it from even thinking about giving it a go. I really worry about the, the narrowness of the gene pool or the lack of depth in the gene pool of people who want to go into politics now. You know, I meet a lot of really clever people. I think, why have you never thought about politics? Oh, no, no way. Um, so I think the impact on mental health is, yeah, I think it's real. And I think it's exacerbated by the fact that for all sorts of reasons, people in politics don't particularly want to admit that they have mental health challenges. Very, very few have. There was a debate a few years ago and four people, four people in parliament spoke up about having had, I think one was depression, Charles Walker was OCD, there's a woman who talked about postnatal depression. Um, but, you know, very, very few, even since then, very few have. Now, I'm not saying, I don't think they should sort of, I don't think we should all be obliged to say, oh, I'm having a good day, a bad day, or I get a depression or I get anxiety. I don't think, I'm not saying that. But I do think if there was more openness, there'd be more understanding. And actually, I found from myself, I've had a lot of, you know, let's be honest, a lot of Tories absolutely despise me. Uh, I'm very proud of that, uh, and a lot of the media likewise. Um, but when it comes to mental health, I felt nothing but support from most people. To be frank, including including parts of the media, that even the papers like the Mail have never really gone for me after they've gone gone after me on that. So I think if we could all be more open, we'd all be better off. Thank you. I think it, it, the level of scrutiny on politicians is is definitely difficult for a lot of them, and maybe opening up about their struggles might help that, but. To a certain extent, I worry that there's an issue of balancing having enough scrutiny when so much accountability is lacked with, for example, everything that's happened with Brexit. For example, Boris is now just out of power, but 
at least in my view, he essentially switched to being pro Brexit for his own personal gain. Oh, oh. And, and, you know, sort of the, there's, there's very little accountability for that. So how would you balance this having the fair scrutiny with also having a regard for their status as individuals and their mental health and stuff? Ooh. You see, I actually think that Johnson is a very interesting example. Johnson got away with murder, is the truth. Johnson didn't have scrutiny, he had coverage. He had a lot of coverage, but he didn't really have scrutiny. I mean, the, the people who were writing about him and brought up, they knew that he was lying, but they didn't cover it from that perspective. Um, so I think there's a difference between intense coverage or big coverage and intense scrutiny. I think scrutiny is a good thing in politics. I think you should be scrutinized. But what is different, I think, I guess now, is the fact that when you're out and about, you know, and I still get this, it's like, you know, it's, it's kind of annoying, but you just got to live with it. It's like, you know, when you're on, a, you're on the tube or something, you know, and, you, and <laughs> spot them a mile off, just people just go like that. And they're pretending, they're pretending, they're looking at their phone, and you, you know. So I sort of go, whatever. Um, but <laughs> so there's that, there's that sort of scrutiny, the feeling actually there's no place you can really kind of be off, as it were. Um, but then the, what I find the problem with our media, particularly on, when you've got a Tory government, I think there's a lack of serious scrutiny on policy. You've just mentioned Brexit, but look at the some of the, some of the stuff that's going on now. You know, the, some of the COVID contracting corruption stuff. The press have just given up investigating it. The stuff that's happening in Teesside with the Freeport stuff, right? Now, I don't know what, I don't know the truth of it, but what I know is every time I pick up Private Eye, it's mind blowing. And nobody seems to have sued them for some of the stuff that they're saying. And yet the rest of the media, part a bit from the FT and a bit from the Guardian, it's like, oh, you know, too complicated or whatever. So, I th and the other thing I'd say is, if, if, if you want to go into politics, this is one of the points I make in the book, politics isn't just about being a politician. Campaigning is politics. Media can be politics. What you're doing is politics in a different sort of way. You're talking about politics is politics. So don't most people who, who become candidates to go into, into office, like you, so we've got an election coming up, lots of people trying to get selected as candidate. Now, for a majority, they're, they're trying to become an MP, okay? Once they become an MP, for, even if most of them think, do you know what, maybe I could be prime minister, deep down, most of them know that they couldn't, okay? So it's only really when you get to the very, very top in politics that you get a level of scrutiny that becomes, if you can't handle it, becomes unbearable, okay? <laughs> Um, or if you be, or if you're a charlatan, or if you're a crook, in which case the scrutiny is completely justified. But if you take, let's be absolutely frank, you take the cabinet, the current cabinet. Um, the truth is, most of them, a majority of that cabinet, would walk down the street, and the majority of people wouldn't have a clue who they were. Now, I think that's a bad thing, not a good thing. Uh, they would know Sunak, probably know Jeremy Hunt. Would most people know James Cleverley, the Foreign Secretary? Probably, probably not. Know, most people would probably know Braverman, probably. 
because of, you know, but not not for good reasons, but because she's made herself so controversial around a, in a particular policy area. I'm I, Every time I go into school, I do this thing with teachers, say, quick, name the education secretary. And every time it's, oh, my God, who is it? Right? It's Gillian Keegan. I guarantee Gillian Keegan could walk, walk up and down my street all day and nobody would know who she was. That's bad. Steve Barclay, yeah. health secretary. Steve Barclay could walk into most hospitals and, oh, isn't that guy? I've seen him on the telly. Who is it? I don't know who he is. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's it's a it's a weird balance because you don't want politicians to become celebrity figures, but at the same time, they are in the public eye and they are the people who make who make change. Yeah, and they're the people who who the electorate are then voting for. I, yeah, exactly. And and no, you, look, the celebritization of politics is is been terrible. I mean, I, I actually I find it horrific that Matt Hancock still talks about going on. I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here is a good thing. I did Gogglebox last night, right? Because my daughter wanted me to do it with her, and it's like even as I'm doing it, I'm thinking, oh no, uh, you, you don't. That's not how people in politics should be. I think you've got to show a human side. That's different. But you know, so I think it's. I think that I think the other thing that's happened is we've we've sort of dumbed down the debate so much. I mean, you won't remember this at all, right? But when I was a young journalist, um, most of the papers, all of the broadsheets, but it's the tabloids as well, they reserved space just to cover the debates in Parliament, right? When do you ever see Parliament on television now, apart from a vote when it's close and Prime Minister's questions? That's about it. And the budget, that's about it. So people don't even see what happens in Parliament. And if you see a select committee, it's only because there's a particular scandal. That's just sort of sense that there's parliament and we should take it seriously. Now, I accept politicians have damaged, done a lot of damage themselves, but I think it's actually the way that the coverage of politics now is so kind of trivial. Um, and, you know, the, the, I've, I've, I'll be honest, I've stopped listening to most of it. And I think, and, and it's not that I don't think the public is still interested. I think one of the reasons so many people listen to our podcast is actually people are more interested in politics than ever. I think a lot of people yeah. have really turned on to politics, but they, they they don't they don't turn on the TV news and think this is kind of fulfilling my desire to know about politics. And the antidote to the thing that we were talking about about social media, everybody wants everything to tweet. Actually, is that you know one of the few sectors that's done really, really well in recent years is books. People are actually reading more books than they did, and I think there's a in some sectors, some sections of the population. I think there's a revulsion to you can say everything in a tweet. You know, it doesn't matter. Does it? There's no need to watch a documentary because you can see five seconds on TikTok. Well, no, I'd rather watch a documentary. So documentaries are doing really, really well as well. I mean, that's, it's interesting that you you bring up TikTok documentaries, books. They can all help for mental health awareness. What do you think are some of the most innovative approaches or practices in mental health care today that you think are most deserving of attention? Is it these TikTok videos that that raise mental health awareness? No, I I I, I think it's uh, well from from my perspective. I think it's I don't think it's particular initiatives. I think it's anything that builds the sense of openness. Um, and I also do think that the you know some of the there's some real there's been some real innovation in things like social prescribing. Uh, I think actually that you know doctors that they're under massive 
pressure, but I think that they're understanding that they shouldn't just be thinking, right, here's some, somebody comes in with a problem, here's medication, but actually here are other ways that we can think about addressing what might be a, a short-term psychological problem. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think I, I, I think the... I think we talk too much about social media, to be honest. I understand why we do. I understand why your generation does, because it's sort of been such a part of your life, presumably from when you were kids. I mean, you know, you've never really known a world without it. But I I think that for something like mental health, for me, it's about anything which breaks down the barriers of stigma and taboo. So the social media, the TikTok video style stuff will be part of that. But I'm more interested in what's at the other end of the telescope, as it were, which is, okay. Now that we've got the person who's been open, how do how are we going to help them get better? And I think a lot of that is about is about social prescribing, it's about employers understanding their responsibility, it's about the education system and how we value teachers and kids. Um, it's these kind of bigger picture, longer term things. Yeah, I remember um, a BBC News snippet where you talked about um, Charles Kennedy's um, passing away in 2015 and how the government um, there's there's little action along. Um, side of uh, dealing with alcoholism or dealing with uh, mental health issues like um, how can I guess the question is how can government make actionable change to support um, people's mental health especially for the case um, after COVID Um, I think by understanding well particularly with this government where the money is tight and you know they're quite tight with it I think understanding that a preventive approach will in the end make savings Mm. You know, at the moment we have a we have a mental illness service. We don't have a mental health service. We have a mental crisis service. If you or I were to, you know, go up to Highgate and you know jump off the try and jump off the the bridge uh, and survive, we'd find they'd find us somewhere to get treated, right? Mm. But if we were to if we were to to phone. A hospital say we were thinking about going there. They'd say, "Oh well, we can't see you, but here's a number you can phone, or here's the Samaritans, or whatever." Far better that somewhere between here, when we started out perfectly well, and here when we're thinking of jumping off the bridge, we understand that that's a spectrum that we're all on all the time. We're all on that spectrum all the time, um, and, and thankfully, very few people ever get over here. But more people get over there than we like to think sometimes. Now, if you could know that when you got to here, that meant you th- there's a potential problem here and you start to try to address it, be it addiction, be it depression, be it anxiety, whatever it might be, and we stop people getting to there, we end up saving more money and we end up stopping a load of misery. So I'd say, I'd say have a preventive approach, which short term will require investment, no doubt about that. I mentioned schools, for example. One of the best things I think we did as a government was have classroom assistants, people who worked alongside teachers. And I think it'd be great to have inside schools classroom assistants whose job was to look out for the mental health and well-being of the kids and the teachers. And not in a kind of nannying kind of way, but just be aware who's struggling, why they're struggling, how can we help them? Um, And I just think we'd, we'd prevent so much damage in the future. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I um, unfortunately, I feel that's all the time we have for. But before we kind of round off, I'd like to say, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. And we wanted to ask if you had 
any advice for podcasters like us, seeing as your podcast is the biggest in the UK? <laughs> uh, it's hard. Listen, you probably, what are you, why are you all guy? Why are you all men? Uh, we're just, we're just a friend group and we basically came together and, and, we, and as a joke, we started to, to, to just chat between us and record it. And then we said, oh, well, we're Oxford students. We might as well start inviting guests. So then we got Dame Moya Green, and then we got Peter Singer, Chomsky. And then it just kind of evolved into like a guest kind of podcast. Yeah, okay, right. So I, I guess um, the point, I'm, look, my, my podcast with Rory Stewart, we're both two men. Um, but I wonder if you thought about maybe adding a woman to the mix. Maybe. Potentially. Potentially. Uh, and maybe, the other thing, maybe what you could start to think to do is rather rather than just kind of discuss stuff i don't know whether you'd think about using graphics and film and so forth maybe develop i think the most look i'll be honest i don't quite know why our podcast has become so successful i really don't fully understand it i find it quite strange it's just two guys talking about politics and okay we've both got a lot of experience we've both got interesting perspectives and we're very different i think the chemistry is important it, I'm really quite struck by how often when I'm out and about, people sort of talk to us almost like, you know, it's almost like, I don't know, they're intrigued in the relationship, which I just find a bit weird. Um, but I wonder whether, listen, this is the first time I've met you, but I wonder whether you, whether it's worth you kind of just thinking, right, this is my character, you know, so like you're the German Maltese guy and <laughs> he's he's the one who decides I've got to wear the headphones because the sound's shit if I don't wear the headphones and I'm obsessed with sound. I don't know. But just have little stories about yourselves that make people keep coming back and I guess a bit of banter. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we, we tried to, to bring that in a little bit with the icebreaker questions, but it is difficult when, when you're interviewing kind of someone who's in the political sphere to make that banter between us, but then also letting you speak. It's it's a hard balance. Yeah, I guess so. But I think I, I wouldn't, you know, it's like we interviewed um, Rory Stewart and I yesterday, we interviewed Paul Nurse, uh, who's a Nobel Prize winning scientist, amazing guy. And, um, and at one point we were talking about, he was talking about his complaint about, you know, political attitudes to science and the, he felt the government wasn't doing enough or what have you. And then Rory Stewart sort of started talking to me about whether we, when we were in power, whether we, how we viewed science, how we valued science. And it always became like a three-way conversation. Um, and so no, I think I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't just think that you should have an argument or a question and session with your guests. I think talking amongst yourselves while you do that is fine. I would do a bit of that. Yeah, thank you. Um, do you have my, what my, produ my producers say, what my producers always say is, it's all about the sound. If the sound is bad, you're in trouble. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree. I agree. So I'm sorry. Do I'm sorry. That my Wi-Fi wobbled. <laughs> I was going to ask, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? Vote Labour. No, vote Labour. Okay, vote Labour. Yeah. Understood. <laughs> Ollie, did you have anything to add to that? And, ne and, and, never, and never give up on the idea that actually, do you know what? One day this country's going to go, what do we just do there? And you get back. And maybe we can do something to change that. So Definitely. But you'll only do it if people like you decide you're going to do it. Yeah. yeah. So well, if you're into politics, get hold of my new book and get campaigning. That's what I say. 
Like I try, I tried to to do like mini politics at the Oxford Union. Unfortunately, I lost my my third election. Um, oh, okay. It's it's, it's fine. It, I found it way too toxic anyway, and it was very very bad for my mental health. I'm a lot happier now. Right. Yeah. But then you know, that's the problem, isn't it? People, good people decide not for me, and that means the bad yeah. people. That means the bad people get in. That's that's. Absolutely correct. <laughs> well, thank right, you. Guys, so I'm going to get changed. I'm going to a wedding. Yeah, thank you so much, Alistair. It's been, it's been an you. absolute pleasure. My pleasure. So was that you joined us. This Great. has been the podcast episode three, season three, signing off. Goodbye. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank, thank you, you guys. Bye. Bye.